Um, I want to thank Terry Wire. Terry's uh, a senior associate with CSIS. He works with our development project, and he has actually assembled the entire program for today, which is fantastic because he was able to reach a number of people who have joined us um, who I think have never spoken at CSIS or haven't been here before. Uh, but are here to help address a topic that is extremely critical to ag development but has not gotten probably the kind of attention that it needs, which is around financing. And as I've gotten to know Terry over the past year, one of the things he talks about, having spent 15, 20 years working on this issue, is that there is, if you want to talk about financing for agricultural development, for smallholder farmers, or even more medium-sized farmers, it's, it's never about a loan. It's always about technical assistance. It's about training along with um, the, the financing. So how we think about that complex picture is going to be increasingly important. What we've done today, there are a few copies. We've run out of copies, but um, if you weren't able to pick up a copy of this paper outside, it is on our website. It's a piece that, um, that I just published actually last month looking at private sector engagement and food security and ag development. And I'll just give you a little bit of background about um, how we got to this point in having this conversation based on some research for this paper. Over the past year or two, I have spent an enormous amount of time talking with companies about how they would, food and ag companies, about how they would like to be engaged in ag development, how they are being engaged. And I heard a consistent theme in every single conversation. There was not one conversation where the topic didn't come up that they were really struggling to engage in the U.S. government development efforts. And there were a number of reasons, and so I, so I try to synthesize what those reasons were and think about some ways that companies can be involved um, both within Feed the Future and then beyond. So I think as a starting point, you're welcome to read the paper, as a starting point, um, you know, wanted to emphasize the incredible importance of Feed the Future and of making sure that Feed the Future is solid, it's supported, and it's effective. Um, because this is the first shot that we have had at ag development in decades, and we, we want to see it succeed. So Feed the Future is really crucial. Um, but second, the fact that Feed the Future, it, just, it, it only hits a few countries, and it hits countries uh, which in some cases really are not appealing prospects for investment from companies. Um, and, I, and I won't mention the companies, but Bill Lesher has worked with four of them. Um, that, that look at this issue and say, how, how actually can we do this? You know, we're really interested in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. How can we focus on food security within the Trans-Pacific Partnership? How can we have help from the embassies or from the AID missions in countries that are not Feed the Future <coughs> countries, but where we actually can do some great work if we partner with NGOs or the embassy or the local governments and ag ministries? So um, there are a number of recommendations here. Um, about approaches for that, including building a toolkit of ways that embassies can facilitate that kind of engagement, of, especially of U.S. companies in those, uh, in those countries that are perhaps not be the future countries. Talking about how to use trade policy as a much uh, more focused way to bring about ag development efforts. Uh, and talking about ag financing. So we're going to have this discussion today, and then we'll follow up with another discussion on trade and the importance of trade agreements and the process of free trade agreements toward, um, toward ag development and food security. I'd add one last note, and that is just sort of within the toolkit of, of topics to cover, 
uh, for our ag development efforts, we kept coming back over and over to the fact that universities and ag extension systems have to really focus on the types of training that will be relevant to food processing, to food safety, to export, to supply chains. And the importance of that type of education uh, can't be understated. It would take a lot of work. But that's another area that we'd like to explore. So thanks for joining us. I'm going to turn it over to Terry. Thank you. Thanks, Joanna. And um, let me just start out by thanking everybody in the room for coming to this event. I think um, as I looked through the, uh, the invite list and the uh, confirmations, it's clear that everybody in the room has a vested interest in this topic. And so that's very exciting for us to have everybody in here that's interested in the topic. And we really do see this as a uh, not just a talking session, but something coming out of this, some uh, um, clear ideas of partnering and also looking at all of you in the room and our panelists as really a workshop where we can maybe go forward with, uh, with this and continue these discussions, continuing partnering. Um, let me, um, so thank you, and let me uh, now introduce our uh, distinguished panelists who, again, I want to thank, uh, Joanna, you've already mentioned it, but I want to thank all of you for, uh, for participating in this event. It's uh, very much appreciated, and you all have... Uh, um, very much to do with this topic, and I uh, have asked, um, I will ask the audience to challenge you as well on some of the things that, uh, that we could do better. But uh, let me start out by introducing uh, Mr. Bruce Cameron from OPIC. Um, he's been with OPIC for 16 years. He's focused on agriculture and food security with OPIC. Uh, next to Bruce is uh, Mr. Tom Campbell with MCC. Um, he is a uh, senior director for private sector development, the PSD group. He has been working with MCC for, oh, how many years? Seven years, and but quite a bit of experience in private sector uh, banking in Chicago, correct? Yeah. And then uh, next, to, next to Tom is uh, Bill Lesher, and Joanna's already mentioned him. He's got quite a bit of experience here in Washington. Uh, I'm just reading through your bio, Bill. You've, got, uh, you've been here since 1977 and basically been working across uh, – the network of agriculture through the government uh, for many of those years. So thank you for coming, Bill. Next to Bill is Dr. Temitope Oshikayo. Did I uh, did I butcher that? A little bit. <laughs> okay. From Echo Bank, um, I would really like to thank uh, um, Mr. Oshikayo um, for coming because he's flown in directly from uh, Lome. For this event, so we very much appreciate your uh, your presence here today, and it's exciting to have you in the room to talk about what Echo Bank's doing across Africa because you have such a presence in Africa. So we're very much uh, um, excited to hear what you're doing in agriculture across the uh, the region. Next to uh, Temi is um, Mr. Kofi. Awashu Bochi, Bochi. So I knew I'd butcher that one, even though you, you wrote it out for me. Sorry, Kofi. But Kofi is from DCA. Um, Kofi's been uh, um, instrumental in putting together uh, quite a few DCA agreements um, across Africa. And uh, um, you also worked in uh, Eastern Europe and Asia as well, correct? Right. So thank you all for coming today. I very much appreciate it. Um, what I would like to do now is actually I'm going to um, – go through a presentation to just frame the, uh, the session today. Um, most of the discussion is going to be from our distinguished panelists, but what I would like to do is just talk through some of the issues that we're going to talk about today. So with that, um, 
I'm not going to read off of these slides, but I will go through them quickly just to uh, give you an idea of what we're here to talk about today. So food security is, as Joanna said, a, an extremely important topic today. Um, most of you in the room already know that uh, agriculture uh, development uh, financing was really not an issue uh, or was dwindling, if you will, into two, until 2008 when we had uh, um, uh, the first of two uh, dramatic spikes in commodity prices. And so at that point, um, given that the, uh, the spikes in commodity prices in 2008 uh, coincided with the global financial crisis, there was a, um, let's say, uh, a focus on the, on the issue. Um, so as you can see on this slide, basically what I'm outlining is how important agriculture is, and especially in developing countries. So 70% of the poor in developing countries live in rural areas and depend on agriculture for a, a daily existence. Um, it is linked to global security. So without food, adults struggle to work and children to learn. Chronic hunger creates conditions ripe for conflict, and we've seen that across the, uh, the developing world. Many of you have seen this figure already. Population is projected to be 9 billion by 2050. And if we continue on with the techniques and the approaches that we have today, it will not suffice. And the math will not add up for us to be able to feed the population in 2050. So it is an extremely important topic at this point. I've already mentioned the two uh, sharp spikes in the prices of basic commodities in 2008 and the most recent one in 2010, I believe it was. And uh, this is a growing concern for, uh, for hunger, especially in the poorest uh, of the countries that uh, um, most of us work in. Coming out of that first spike, there was a meeting in Italy. The G8 leaders uh, met in Italy and uh, have come up with uh, um, basically five principles, the Rome principles, that laid out the roadwork for investments in uh, food security. Out of that, there was $25 billion pledged by those governments, NGOs, uh, um, and multinationals, $3.5 billion of that promised by the United States government. And thus, we have the uh, Feed the Future initiative, which is $3.5 billion, uh, which was introduced by the Obama administration in May of 2010. F, uh, uh, Feed the Future is designed to invest in country-owned plans based on individual country strategies, and we'll, we'll hear about that more as we go through our panelists' discussions and how they are aligning their uh, strategies together with individual country governments and how they need to match so that we can have success. Um, and, and I think uh, MCC is a good example of that, where they have to work with partner governments to, to be very successful. Align resources with non-governmental partners. Um, leverage multinational investments. This is an interesting one for, example, the World Bank, IFC, IDB, and others um, that need to be aligned together with uh, the, the bilaterals, such as the Feed the Future uh, initiatives that the U.S. government is doing, and deliver um, clear benchmarks and targets. That's easier said than done, as most of us know, but uh, we tried to draw up the, uh, the efficient uh, monitoring, evaluation, and benchmarks and uh, um, that is a, a difficult topic as well, which we'll address today. So the missing piece. Um, this is another, really, the, uh, the framing of the idea for today, and that is the private sector. So the missing piece in those discussions in Rome and the, the Rome principles was the private sector. That was all initiated by governments and multinationals. And uh, so what we would like to do is, is really focus on how do we leverage the private sector 
private sector initiatives that are taking place. I mean, the private sector has obvious uh, uh, reasons to, to move into many of the economies that we're dealing with and many of the economies that Feed the Future are working with. So, I, I mean, let me just uh, um, give you a bit of history on myself before I move into the, the basics. But uh, my day job is working in South Africa on a, uh, a financial sector program. And in that project, um, we do see um, specific private sector companies that want to engage with either the U.S. government or with others um, the IFC, when I was working with IFC, and it's very difficult because they often don't align completely, and so you don't get a deal done. So one of the things that we need to talk about today as well, again, is having the private sector involved from the get-go, from the design stage of these projects that are taking place, whether they be multi-million, multi-billion dollar projects, the private sector really can play a large-scale role here and we need to focus on that from design stage. And I, I'll reiterate the design stage because generally what happens, at least from my experience, is that the private sector comes in as an afterthought and it just doesn't align well. So I think that's something that we need to take away from today is how we can get the private sector engaged from the beginning. Um, some of the other questions we want to answer today is what is being done successfully. So we'll hear from our panelists on some of the projects that are successful, um, that are moving forward in financing farmers and developing economies. Um, and I, I'd really like to hear from uh, um, some of the audience and some of the panelists on uh, the priority countries for Feed the Future. And are those the right countries? Um, could we work in other countries, for example, that are more uh, developed, that might have more success and more development impact? Um, obviously, we need to focus still on the priority countries, but can there be a better and more efficient development impact if you go to uh, mid-level countries, for example? And then, uh, as the, uh, the title of the, uh, the event has already talked about, how do we reach smallholder farmers? Um, how do we really engage smallholder farmers and, and get them part of a value chain and part of... Uh, um, a market access uh, situation where they can get their goods to market and into an international buyer's hands so that uh, um, we have effective, uh, um, uh, well, the inputs are the obvious uh, uh, question there as well. So um, what can donor comp or donors and developing countries uh, better align their policies and dollars? This is, again, getting back to uh, getting the private sector involved from the get-go and then leveraging the private sector uh, efficiently. So that, that's really the framing of the issues. Again, I want, you know, as you see, I've, I've really uh, um, pinpointed on getting the private sector involved from the get-go, and so I'd like to really, out of this event, come away with how can we better do that. And as um, uh, uh, the panelist, uh, Mr. Uh, um, Temi from uh, uh, Echo Bank, and I'm just going to call you Temi because I'll butcher your name all, all day. So, Temi. <laughs> Um, he and I had discussions yesterday on how we can actually put deals together out of these types of events because I, I think, you know, again, we don't need talking shops. What we need to do is understand how we can have better development impact by bringing groups like Echo Bank into the situation that has coverage across, what is it, 26 countries? 30? 33 countries now. So 33 countries across Africa. How can we bring that, uh, that, that reach um, into the equation of uh, how our public sector programs are going forward. So with that, I would like to now hand it over, and uh, we'll start with uh, Bruce. Would you like to? Uh, it's up to you, whatever you're comfortable with. Okay. 
good afternoon. I uh, did not come with a prepared presentation. And uh, we'll just speak for a minute or two about OPIC for those of you that don't know what we are. And then just a few thoughts on this sector, this initiative. But really, I think my, the gentleman sitting to my right, you know, far, far more expertise than I can uh, bring to this. So OPIC, for those of you who don't know, is Overseas Private Investment Corporation. We're a small U.S. government agency. We're the development finance institution of the U.S. government. And basically, we can provide uh, financing and political risk insurance for projects in developing country that have some U.S. nexus to them. Um, generally, we say we have a private sector focus, but really it's broader than that because we can work for, with not-for-profit projects as long as those projects are sustainable and can repay a loan. And we can provide anywhere from, we say a few hundred thousand, but realistically, say a million dollars up to $250 million in financing per project. And we can, when we say project, that can have many connotations. It could be a manufacturing or a processing plant. It could be a finance facility. It could be a hotel. And we work in a broad range of sectors. We work uh, in the renewable sector, microfinance, impact investing, the traditional sector. So all sizes of projects, all types of projects in probably two-thirds of the countries of the world. And where we can, not only are we trying to leverage the private sector, but we try to leverage with other U.S. government agencies or other development finance type of institutions and entities or not-for-profits or foundations. So we've been around as an independent agency since 1972, and in some ways we're better known in the developing countries than we are here. Um, so... We, we think we can be a piece of this. Obviously, other agencies like USDA and AID are, are, are doing just a tremendous amount in this sector. And our portfolio in what you might call the ag food security sector is fairly small at this point. But our political leadership want, wants to be part of the solution. We want to do, again, we, we think we can bring something to this. For us, there's probably two big challenges. I mentioned we have... Unlike a multilateral, we have to have a U.S. nexus to the projects that we support. So either U.S. citizens that invest, U.S. corporations, U.S. foundations, U.S. not-for-profits. And recently we've adapted our criteria to include U.S. green card holders. So we're hoping that may bring more latitude. Um, and uh, we can use guarantees or direct lending authority. And then... Specific to this sector, I think one of the things we see is also some, some entity that's willing to provide, in the case of finance facilities, first a first loss, whether that's grant or soft equity that comes in to help with the first loss that allows a financing facility to, to get rolling and uh, develop the client relationships and the credit criteria. So those are, for us, are probably the two biggest challenges in, in this sector. If we can find a way through that, we, I think we can do some pretty creative projects. And I, I just recently switched from the housing sector, and I'll give you a, a parallel there. For five years, we've been trying to support housing microfinance around the world, and we could not find an entity that would step forward to partner with us. Finally, and, and not to say, housing microfinance is taking place around the world, but sort of one-off examples, no global initiative. So finally, Habitat for Humanity after four or five years, I think it came forward and said they would do a fund. So it's called Microbuild, and we're getting ready to close the loan agreement, hopefully in the next month, basically to lend to microfinance institutions 
who will make housing microfinance loans. But they were the first entity, for-profit or not-for-profit, that had a U.S. connection after five years of trying. And I sit and look at this sector, and to me it's very much a parallel, for, for, at least from an OPIC perspective. I think there's great things we can do here. As an example, Echo Bank, we, we've chatted. There's probably some great things we could do with Echo Bank if we could find a U.S. connection between us. They've got the network. We've got plenty of financial capacity, and that would leverage our resources so much further because we're only an entity of 200 people. So those type of partnerships really go much further. And just a, a couple other thoughts, and then I'll turn it over to the next speaker. That um, for, From my perspective, and, and I had worked on this sector in the early 2000s. I have worked on different projects in this sector, even though for a while it's on the housing. Personally, I think the co-ops, credit unions, microfinance institutions are a big piece of the equation. Somehow to find, or particularly in Africa, find a way to re-engage and find an effective way to lend with them. And I know I've talked to lots of experts who tell me all the bad stories. But I, I think there's got to be a way to re-engage and start slowly, start conservatively with the credit. Because if you're talking about trying to reach into the rural areas and the poorest uh, smallholder farmers, I, I don't see how you get there from a large-scale standpoint without it, that being part of, the, part of the story. That's not to say that all these other steps, the processing, the road systems, the, uh, the commodity trading entities, are, you know, it's all it, – there's multiple pieces to this. But I, I personally think the co-ops credit unions is it. Is it, and microfinance institutions is a big part of the story. And the other thing from where I sit, and again, we're, we're part of the story, but we're kind of in this unique box as OPIC, is I'd really like to see a point. I know every country has to have unique solutions. Each project finances its own solution. But I'd also like to see sets of projects done where it's four or five projects in different countries that are similar, whether it's finance facilities or similar projects. So you can, over a couple-year period, you can start to build the lessons learned. Because if every facility and every project is a one-off, even though there's lots of great projects taking place, and I, and I do think, you know, many, again, our sister agencies and are doing great things, but it, unless you can do sets of projects to learn the lessons or see how to adjust, I think, on, again, on a large scale, it becomes hard to adjust and think how to go forward in the future. Um, again, I these gentlemen have way more expertise in this sector than I do, and I'll be happy to be part of the conversation once we get through their presentations. Just uh, Let me um, just quickly, uh, before, Tom, you come up, I just wanted to set the rules of the day, if you will, and um, in regards to questions and this type of thing. So what we would like to do is go through the panelists' um, discussions. And then uh, what we'll do is ask some questions of the panel. I will ask some direct questions to the panelists. Um, to bring out some ideas, and then once we're through with that, we will go to the audience for questions. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's many of you out there that have uh, much, very much experience in this, so we're looking forward to your questions and, and some of your comments. When you do ask questions, please uh, give your name, your organization, make it a clear question, and please um, stay away from long monologues, if you could. <laughs> with that, Tom. Um, Uh, thanks. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Tom Campbell, uh, and as Terry said, I run the private sector development group at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which includes financial sector development along with other private sector development sorts of uh, activities. I'd like to 
talk through a number of topics today. First of all, I'll tell you a little bit about MCC and the model uh, that uh, MCC uses in uh, foreign development. I want to talk a little bit about access to finance and what that means, since it's a more complex topic than it might appear at, at first blush. I want to give you an idea of the sorts of projects that we have done without taking you through an exhaustive inventory. And then at the end, I'll tell you what lessons we think we have learned at this point, although it's an ongoing learning experience for us as well as uh, for others who, who work in this particular space. First of all, MCC, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, is a U.S. government agency uh, intended, designed to do foreign aid in a different sort of way. Uh, our model relies on country ownership. We select countries who are eligible according to a set of 17 criteria. Once eligible, a country uh, makes a proposal to us as to how it is that they would use the grant funding that is available through MCC for economic development uh, in their particular uh, country. And ultimately, all of these grants, whether they be for agriculture or for some other purpose, are intended to uh, activate the private sector, uh, broadly speaking, with, within uh, a country, but obviously they zero in on a particular uh, uh, sector. We don't have, we don't think of ourselves, for example, as OPEC does, as a financial institution. We have no particular competitive advantage as a financial institution. We don't have any particular product that we think is a better product in the developing countries in which we work than than others, we start with a set of constraints that are affecting development uh, in a particular country, and then try to understand what it takes to address those constraints, reduce those constraints. Uh, and in a number of countries, given the, the statistic that Terry cited about how large a portion of the population in the countries in which we work, which are mostly lower income countries, uh, uh, works in agriculture, lives in rural areas and works in agriculture, uh, we get many proposals that focus on agriculture. And as we look at agriculture, many people say, well, in order to really make progress in agriculture, we need to address issues related to access to finance. Uh, and we try to then understand what that means. And access to finance doesn't just mean Gee, if only the bank would lend me money. Uh, access to finance can mean, for example, uh, lack of geographic access. There are not sufficient rural nodes, banks, microfinance institutions, other entities uh, that are within easy commuting distance for most of the people who live in rural areas. If you, if you uh, go to uh, Ghana, for example, uh, you can go out in the, uh, the countryside and you will see lots and lots of yellow Western Union buildings. This is the way that remittances, about, about $4 billion a year, flow to, to Ghana, but there are other rural banks, about 500 branches of rural banks in Ghana, that don't have the same sort of access to remittance flows, for example. So trying to connect all of those entities somehow to remittance flows, although remittances is not the highest priority, 
but just uh, allowing them to have some sort of place where they can take their cocoa payment checks and get access to finance more easily is certainly something that should be a high priority. Term mismatch comes under the heading of access to finance. Uh, microfinance institutions and other rural banks are often more than happy to make uh, uh, crop cycle sorts of loans and short-term loans, but it's difficult to finance a silo or a truck uh, if you can't get term loans that match the sort of uh, life uh, span of the asset that, uh, that you want to purchase. There are other criteria as well, uh, collateral terms. Uh, banks in uh, many of our countries have very onerous collateral returns and don't understand, quite frankly, the concept of lending against projected cash flows. Um, and in most of the countries we work the government securities yield curve, which should define the riskless rate within a particular country, doesn't go nearly far enough. Uh, it often goes two, three, four years, sometimes five, rarely beyond five years, except in some of the very largest countries in which we, we deal. But for most countries, it's, it's five years and less. Um, lack of liquidity can be one reason. Lack of bank liquidity, that is. There just aren't sufficient funds at, uh, at a local banking office for, uh, uh, for banks to meet the demand that might come to them, particularly during, during the beginning of the crop cycle. Uh, and not least, lack of legal structure to support more complex lending relationships such as private equity sorts of structures. So uh, once we get a proposal to, uh, uh, that says we need help understanding how to, we need help trying to unblock this constraint of access to finance, we first need to understand precisely what the problem is that we're trying to address because if we misstate the problem or uh, don't understand it, it properly, the solution that we uh, agree to fund at the end of the day will not be the right one. Well, what have we done? Let me give you uh, a brief inventory. Uh, we've done lots and lots of loans in support of uh, agriculture. We have, by the way, about 25 compacts with uh, countries around the world totaling a about $10 billion. Uh, of those 25 compacts, by my count, there are 13 with access to finance programs. And of those, uh, 10 are directed at agriculture. So this is not a big, it's about $100 million, roughly speaking, of ag-directed credit programs. This is not a big portfolio by the standards of uh, of other donors, so it's a little bit tenuous to draw conclusions based on our eight years of life and the portfolio of only ten compacts with these sorts of activities, but we'll try nevertheless. Um, we went through microfinance institutions in uh, Cape Verde and Madagascar. We do term funding for capital goods, provide term funding to financial intermediaries in Moldova and Burkina Faso. We have overhauled payment systems, which some people don't think of as being part of the problem, but definitely are, uh, in a number of different countries, Madagascar and Ghana. Uh, we've worked on credit bureaus, 
in a number of countries. Credit bureaus are one of those things that give people access to credit uh, by strengthening the credit culture in a country over time. Uh, we've done a movable property registry in Honduras that is uh, uh, described as uh, uh, the model for the rest of Central uh, America. And we've done an investment fund in Georgia. Uh, and we've also done uh, some risk-sharing arrangements. And I'm sure Kofi will talk about the, the DCA program. And we don't have a DCA program, but we've introduced a, a program that looks something like that. The project sizes have ranged from $500,000 to about $30 million. Um, so what have we learned from, from all of that? Uh, here are a couple of the lessons that we have learned. First, with respect to subsidies. Uh, our developing countries are used to donors who are willing to subsidize activities. This is the way to incent activities, provide a subsidy. Well, we think subsidies are very dangerous, uh, very distorting, especially subsidies to the end borrower. However, we are more than willing to provide subsidies to the financial intermediaries. In other words, provide them with relatively inexpensive funds so that they have the liquidity to online to a particular sector. Although we run into debates all of the time with financial intermediaries about what that means, what the word subsidy in that context means. I won't go into that uh, uh, here. Um, we have learned that there's no silver bullet, that rarely is there one activity that will uh, solve the problem, address the problem, and the problem gets better. It's a combination of uh, technical assistance, institution building, uh, financial products, uh, a variety of, of things, and all of them have to be uh, addressed. Uh, third, I'd say, and this we've learned from hard experience, uh, the selection of who we choose hire, or actually who our country counterparts hire to manage the program is absolutely key. Um, and if their job, as they perceive it, is to take the money from the compact and move it out, to get it out the door, we have problems. The, uh, the job of whoever manages this program is to say no from time to time and to build the credit culture within an economy rather than simply uh, agreeing to fund whatever uh, credit request might uh, come in the door. And finally, and I'll, I pose this because I see John in the background and uh, Kofi from DCA here, at least our own experience with risk-sharing arrangements has been kind of inconclusive. Uh, we, have, we have offered a, uh, to share in the risk with financial intermediaries on a 50-50 basis in a number of situations. We haven't done any statistically rigorous test, uh, and I'd be interested to know what DCA might have done on, on that sort of thing, but we have not found that offering to share risk with financial intermediaries if they are to make loans to a particular sector that we're trying to address has changed in a long-term meaningful way the financial intermediaries uh, willingness to do that once that risk-sharing plan uh, has gone away. So those are the, some, of the, some of the lessons, and I hope we can, during the question and answer period we can talk about some of those and share experiences of uh, people in the audience. Thanks. Bill's going to come up. Um, 
Hannah. Do you know how to sort out the presentation? Yeah. Okay. Adjust the volume when you play the video. This is to turn the volume up, and this is to turn and it down. And you click the. Uh, you can just press enter. You can click. Enter, okay. You can go use the arrows too to go back. Okay, great. Well, listen. I, uh, thanks very much, Terry. Um, I first want to thank CSIS. Uh, I compliment you on holding this uh, conference today. Uh, uh, you always do scholarly work, and it's always appreciated. But uh, I really thought that, that Johanna, your your last uh, publication was excellent and focusing on the private sector. And so coming from Global Harvest Initiative, uh, members are all private sector. We appreciate it very much. Um, I'm just going to go uh, through a little background about Global Harvest Initiative. Uh, the mission is fairly clear. That is, if you're going to sustainably double output through 2050 uh, and protect land, water, and habitat, that's a huge job. I mean, I don't care. People say, well, you're going to, have to produce more food in the next 40 years than you have in the last 1,000 or whatever. It's not only just producing enough, but thinking about beyond producing, the roads, the storage bins, the processing, all that that goes with it. And the challenges are enormous. And I just speak from personal experience. I grew up on a farm in Indiana, and ever since I was a little kid, and going through all the land-grant universities, studying about surpluses. I worked in the Senate Agriculture Committee, worried about surpluses. Worked in the Department of Agriculture, worried about surpluses. And out in the private sector, and worried about surpluses. And you know, that's a long time. That's many years. And then come along the food price spikes in 2008. And then another one in 2010. And so, you know, you begin to think, there's got to be a paradigm shift here because there are not going to be more surpluses. I don't care if the U.N. projections of population are off 20%. I don't care. In fact, you've got challenges. They're significant, and you're not going to be worried about surpluses, so we have to have a paradigm shift in our thinking. And that's really about what Global Harvest is, uh, what started it, John Deere, Archer Daniel Midland, Monsanto and DuPont started it in 2009, and um, this is uh, their mission and their history. This is a, sort of a depiction of uh, from 2009 to uh, currently, and I'm not going to go through all of it. I would just say we started with two symposiums. We commissioned nine scholarly uh, studies uh, in 2009 and 2010. We inaugurated what we call the gap. In other words, in the, and we presented the gap analysis at the World Food Prize in October of 2010. And basically it says this. We assume you've got to freeze the environmental footprint for agriculture. And we assume you've got a double output. Okay? So that means what? Productivity has got to go up. You've got to produce more with exactly the kind of resources you're using now. 
So we did a calculation using U.S. Department of Agriculture data and said, okay, assume the population growth. What kind of productivity rate do we have to have to, to, to meet the challenges? Well, that's the one graph, the top graph. Well, where are we now? 1.8% a year. Where are we now in 2010? We're at 1.4%. Well, that means you're, you're behind. And so every year you've got to think about increasing productivity to meet the challenges. So then we, uh, uh, we went on in 2011. We looked at the kind of policies that we think are important to focus on. And they're not really uh, uh, significant. Or I mean, they're not surprising, I should say. Research, trade, um, uh, strengthening streamlining uh, assistance programs, uh, embracing science-based technologies, and embracing uh, private sector investment and involvement. Uh, about this time, uh, Global Harvest Initiative sort of, it was only myself, and so they decided to expand the, the, the uh, number of uh, man hours working on this, so two senior associates joined us. We have Erica Seitzer and Laura Berenger. Raise your hands. Uh, basically, the model of Global Harvest Initiative is they'll, uh, our membership uh, brings, uh, well, will lend a full-time employee to work on Global Harvest Initiative for a year or two. And so they're busily working on this, and, and uh, we're going to do the 2012 uh, uh, GAP report at the World Food Prize in Des Moines. And... Uh, we hope to, uh, the board wants us to become even more global. We're going to find out what that means pretty soon. We did have two more members join, a technology leader, IBM, and a, a global animal health provider, Alinco. So um, uh, we're really pleased with both of them. They bring different dimensions to uh, Global Harvest Initiative. Uh, in particular, I think the, uh, the Alinco, we were not very... Um, didn't have a very deep perspective on animal agriculture, which is very, very important. Uh, I'd like to run, uh, give a video now that we did in the last uh, GAP report in the World Food Prize in 2011, and so we'll start right now. And cross your fingers. Um, from EcoBank, and uh, we're excited to hear about the 33 countries, the reach that you have across Africa, and what we can do together to, uh, with our public sector friends to partner. Thank you. Thank you very much, Terry. Uh, first of all, I want to start by thanking CSIS for organizing this uh, event. I think it's important for Africa, it's important for the private sector in Africa, and it's important for EcoBank as well. I also want to thank Terry for um, trying to engage uh, EcoBank in this sort of e event, and we take this very seriously. Actually, I just joined EcoBank about uh, three months ago. Uh, my role as a senior advisor is, like, say, the group chief economist for, 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 for EcoBank. And what EcoBank <coughs> is trying to do is to position itself not just as a commercial bank or an investment bank, 
but also a development institution, and you will hear a lot on this. And I came from a development background, and my job is to help them in terms of knowledge management, to help them in terms of uh, policy dialogue, partnership for development, as well as um, ensuring development star sustainability of EcoBank operations. On that note, let me, <clears throat> uh, let me just quickly go through what I would like to talk about. Um, the, the, the first relates essentially to what EcoBank is, and then I will go straight to EcoBank agribusiness and why we're a preferred partner for CSIS, for the private sector, and for the public sector within the U.S., EcoBank is, uh, is, uh, has the largest network of, uh, of, um, of banks, among banks in, in Africa. We are present in 32 countries because we realize that we might not be able to compete well in South Africa. We actually built an alliance with NetBank in, in South Africa. So we are present in all the sub-Saharan African countries except South Africa and we are present in 32 countries. We are number one bank in at least eight countries. We are within the top three in at least another 15 countries. And in Nigeria, which is the largest market outside of, uh, outside of South Africa, we are number five. We moved from about number 16 just uh, last year to number five by acquiring a new, um, a new by acquiring an uh, uh, oceanic bank. Now, right from the beginning, EcoBank was not set up as a national bank. It was set up as a regional bank and uh, to promote regional integration and development. And we, sim we simply believe that EcoBank is not just a bank, it's a movement. You know? We try as much as possible uh, to adhere to international standard financial reporting in U.S. dollars and in accordance with IFRS, and we are also rated by leading rating agencies. As I said, uh, when you look at um, our presence, it's uh, in about uh, 30, 33 countries, and we're also trying to build presence in Angola and one other country, making it to 35. We're the largest of any bank in middle Africa. We have about 1,100 branches, about 8.3 million customers. Our asset has grown to about $17 billion, and it's the second largest in middle Africa. We are the largest employers of labor within the financial sector in middle Africa with about 23,000 employees. In terms of diversity, as you can see, we are present in East, West, Central, and Southern Africa. We are present in Anglophone, Francophone, and Lusophone countries. And uh, our workforce is about 41% uh, female, and the management are also about 33% uh, women. Our strategy, uh, as I said, is to become the leading bank in, in, in Middle Africa. In, up to 2010, we were trying to build the platform. And again, the EcoBank was established in 1985. So we're just 25 years old compared to, say, Citibank that was established maybe 200 years ago, or Standard Bank or South Africa that was established in, in about 150 years ago. So in 25 years, we've been able to spread to 35 uh, countries. Now, between 2011 and 2012, we've also been trying to develop scale in key markets. As I indicated, we are number one in about eight countries, and we are number between one and number three in about 15 countries, and uh, number five in the largest market in Middle Africa. 
And beyond, we are also trying to accelerate our, our growth in terms of assets, in terms of opportunities that are available, and so on and so forth. So we've been delivering sustainable growth based on these uh, uh, four key pillars, scale. Uh, and you need scale to be able to do um, big transactions on infrastructure and so on and so forth. Even in uh, some agricultural projects, you also need diversification in terms of geography. You've heard about that. In terms of business, we're a retail bank, a corporate bank, a commercial bank, an investment bank, and also a development bank uh, in a way. The same thing in terms of product, we are, we are uh, quite diversified in terms of the product that we offer, both generally as well as in agriculture. In terms of efficiency, we are one bank. Anywhere you go, you see the same blue platform of EcoBank. And we have one shared services and technology. We use the same um, core banking applications all over the countries that, that, uh, that we are present. We have tried to focus on 10 key growth areas, and these include um, regional businesses. In essence, we try to um, uh, be behind corporates that can spread all over the continent. And uh, we, we deal in African currencies. Indeed, we are number one when it comes to uh, uh, dealing with uh, in African currencies from our Paris uh, uh, affiliates. Uh, we deal with commodity finance and value chain, which are also related to issues relating to agricultural finance, cards, uh, public sector, uh, electronic and mobile banking, uh, payments and remittances, and so on and so forth. Those are the 10 key growth areas that we foresee and will continue to focus on customers and flagship products in these areas. Um, let me quickly go straight to where um, what we do in terms of EcoBank agribusiness. I decided to sk skip the other part of the presentation because some of the panelists have referred to issues that are constrained in the, in the, in the, in the sector. Now, Bill made a statement in, in, in his presentation. He said no country in history has succeeded in generating capital necessary to achieve its development goals without broad, effective, and continuing mobilization of private capital. We strongly believe in that, uh, that Africa needs a vibrant private sector to be able to develop. And this private sector capital is important not only in the various sectors, but essentially also in, 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 in agriculture. And our objective in agribusiness is to contribute to raising productivity and profitability of various stakeholders through efficient agricultural value chain financing. Improve effectiveness in the supply chain by matching supply with market demand. Our intervention, particularly in the downstream activities through the value chain, includes supporting agricultural inputs, logistics, warehousing, processing and trading, structured primary and secondary financing of supply chain stakeholders. We've also been involved in risk-sharing mechanism through the DCA as well as the uh, support of the USAID uh, to EcoBank in, in, in this area. 
uh, which started as far back as 1992. In addition, our strategy is to partner and collaborate with all stakeholders in the agri-value chain and supply chain to impact on farmers' income, productivity development, and returns to investment. This describes the various um, value chain activities that we are involved in and that I alluded to earlier on. Our agri-financing products uh, and general conditions include microfinance, uh, small and medium uh, uh, enterprises, letters of credit, bill discounting, as well as uh, risk sh sharing. In addition to these, we provide advice, technical assistance, uh, and uh, support to, 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 to input. In terms of conditions, they vary from country to country. However, general requirements, which are based on the standards of the group, include evidence of market potential, purchasing agreement and sales contract for the activities we are trying to get in, recognize cooperative agricultural stakeholders, demonstrated and realistic and sound technical capability of the project we are trying to get involved, commitment through a down payment at an agreed percentage, domiciliation of account through ECOBAM. Before I leave this page, I want to say something about our microfinance activities, which actually... Uh, tends to focus on uh, rural dwellers, small-scale holders, and so on and so forth. To our, one of the products that we have, we were able to give, to, to, to give uh, a minimum of $100 loan to, 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 to farmers, and we were able to do this uh, and reach about 120,000 people. Uh, using the small um, uh, dollar loan. And $100 loan to some farmer is a, is, 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 is a lot of money. But we were able to partner uh, with uh, our microfinance institution and also partner with ASEAN, uh, the global uh, microfinance uh, uh, institution, to establish microfinance subsidiaries. For, for in in, um, in several countries that we are we are present. So in addition to our regular lending to the agri sector, we also try to intervene through the microfinance uh, subsidiaries. These are some of the sample agri business that we have been involved in uh, through matching grant scheme uh, for IFA root and tuber improvement marketing program in Ghana, at growers financing risk sharing scheme facility to cash processors and so on. And uh, this is where USAID and DC has been very helpful to Ecobank. Supply side financing in Uganda and uh, supply side financing through the World Food Program pro activity in, in Liberia. I also want to conclude this presentation by noting that Ecobank is the preferred partner. Indeed, we want you to see it as the preferred partner in terms of regional bank in, in, in Africa. We would like to strengthen partnership with technical and funding institutions, and we expect that institutions like OPIC, uh, USAID, uh, MCC, will continue to uh, partner with uh, commercial banks uh, where possible, 
to, to, to lend to the agricultural sector. It is also important to enhance knowledge management and capacity building on agribusiness management in the financial institutions that are present in, in, in the continent. Involve commercial banks in the management and disbursement of some agricultural development funds, the $10 billion that was mentioned uh, in the case of MCC. We would like to grab a little bit of that. Um, again, as I indicated, uh, EcoBank is your gateway to Africa. Our Pan-Africa network, the convenience for customers that we have built, our strong asset base, we have about $17 billion in assets that I indicated earlier on, and international standards that we are there to uniquely position EcoBank as the gateway to Africa for agribusiness investment and agriculture financing. At EcoBank, we are not just bank bankers. We see ourselves, as I indicated earlier on, as a movement. And we are partners in Africa's sustainable development. This partnership, we believe, provides EcoBank with the network uh, to interface with stakeholders such as the CSIS uh, on diverse programs and initiatives that could help uh, in accelerating the mobilization of private capital for development in the continent. We also network for development. We connect with other stakeholders by deepening partnership with institutions on issues that enhance sustainable development of the continent. For example, I participate in the World Trade uh, Organization's issues that relates to trade and how we can leverage on this for our trade finance uh, program. And also with um, the ACP countries, the European Union, and so on and so forth. We hope that we can develop business opportunities and explore business opportunities with programs and institutions such as FTF, USAID, MCC, OPIC, and the private sector in the U.S. to foster food security and agriculture development in Africa. The bottom line for me is deals, deals, deals. Deliver on it, Terry. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Temi. Um, what I would like to do actually in, in regards to deals, deals, deals is actually go around the room here and talk to uh, and ask for, not now, but uh, after Kofi is done, talk about some of the uh, uh, work that's being done together with Echo Bank across the region in Africa, such as the World Cocoa Foundation and others. Shore Bank is also working with Echo Bank across the region. So it be interesting to hear those, uh, those perspectives. Kofi, thank you. Thank you. I, um, I, I serve as the investment officer within the DCA, uh, which is the Development Credit Authority, uh, overseeing deals in East Africa and Ghana. Uh, for those of you who do not know what DCA is or who we are, I like to describe it as a, a scrappy little office within USAID <laughs> that, uh, that hits way above our weight in terms of getting our name out there and getting development finance as part of USAID's development uh, assistance programs. Now, I put this up here. It's a quote directly from uh, Administrator, Administrator Raj Shah uh, from last year uh, to demonstrate, in, in a way, the sea change that we've seen as far as the emphasis on the private sector 
uh, within USAID's thinking and the development paradigm that we are working in. Um, hardly a day goes by or hardly a speech goes by these days without a reference to the role of the private sector. And indirectly, it points back to the role of DCA and access to credit and what we can do to facilitate uh, the private sector's engagement within the sector. Um, if you pardon me, I'll spend a few, I'll dwell on this particular um, slide here to, to kind of go through what we do. But before I even do that, I want to recognize John Vasilevsky, who is sitting in the hiding out in the back there. Yes, the, the gentleman looking behind him. Is, uh, John, if you could raise your hands, if we could recognize you. There he is. John is, is essentially the godfather of this facility. And, you know, as we've pointed out, no country or no, no, no nation can grow to a position of development, um, achieving its development objectives without finding a way to mobilize local private capital. And our sole premise for doing what we do is how can we utilize the, the, the U.S. government's balance sheet, essentially to galvanize private sector players to take a stake within their own development and contribute to, the, uh, to the, how we, ad we address the development issues within the, the spaces that USAID has traditionally worked in. Agriculture has been one of the big ones. And if you look at the quote here, Administrator Shah has actually required and given us a mandate that for the next five years, he wants to double what we took 10 years to do, uh, do it in five years again. Because the demand is so strong and the sectors, particularly in health and agriculture, is so urgent that we should be able to go out there and achieve these objectives. Now the question is, what, what is the role of an agency like USAID and an office like DCA? What can we do to invite or serve as a carrot, so to speak, to invite private sector players like Ecobank to take an active role in addressing the credit needs of the various sectors of interest to us, in this particular instance, agriculture? Now, on the bottom, on the, S on the X axis of this, of this slide that you're looking at is the various stages of uh, market viability, if you will. And the very early stage, if you can see it clearly, is where uh, no lender in your right mind will perhaps uh, go into it on your own. And there, is, there are many such spaces, especially within agriculture, and in the area that I'm most you know, exposed to is within Africa, perhaps a lot more spaces within this arena than there are more commercially viable spaces. And so the question becomes, how can we, as a, as a catalyst, invite private sector players and investors to, to want to even participate in the conversation as far as addressing the credit needs of that sector? Uh, and there are various tools we can use to address that. Traditionally, USAID has used um, technical assistance and grant mechanisms. Now, the question is, how long can we continue to do that? Um, you know, the budget environments are becoming more constrained over the years and more so in the last few years. And so the private sector's role, as well as the, the role of other development agents and other donor parties, becomes ever more important. Um, we have traditionally used a 50% shared risk guarantee arrangement. Essentially, if a bank like Ecobank has a strategy and is willing to engage with us within agriculture, we agree to give them um, a guarantee to take up 50% of the individual losses and uh, ensuing from the individual loans it makes into that targeted sector, which we would have come to some agreement on. Now, 50% uh, has been an effective 
catalyst in many different sectors. And I'll, I'll, I'll take some time probably during the discussion series to address some of the, uh, the, most, the, the sustainability question that was raised by Tom, Tom Campbell earlier. But I'll tell you that, especially within the SME space, now SME broadly writ to include agriculture, um, at a time when it was becoming no longer profitable for banks to buy treasuries or offload all their deposits into treasuries and not do any lending, that pivot point was a crucial point whereby a 50% shared risk guarantee combined with our technical assistance packages became a very effective way of galvanizing interest in sectors that banks would not necessarily have traditionally been interested in. So we give them the technical assistance to show them the viability of those sectors. And, you know, that's the B level here, the proof of concept. How can we show that if a bank or a private sector uh, is willing to put up their own capital, that there is enough creditworthy investments to be able to assure repayment of those or profitability within those sectors? They can do it on their own at 100%, and chances are they probably won't do it then. But if we can go in there and say we're working together and show you that based on our own due diligence and our own assessment of the impact that we can have within this sector. Not only is it profitable, but you can also bear the risk, and we will take up half of the risk with you, and um, with the expectation that over time, we can graduate to C, which is the market demonstration, which essentially implies having gone through a series or a, a, a series or a number of years of uh, partnership within the shared risk arrangement, a bank can begin to open up a unique window that will be able to attract investments towards that sector. We've seen that happen in Uganda. We've seen it happen with Ecobank. Frankly, we've been working with Ecobank um, for quite a few years. And if you were to track the, the transition into an SME bank, Ecobank was never always an SME bank. It has been a gradual process. And, and I'm happy to say that we've been there with them at critical stages and proven the concept in places like Ghana where they were able to use this tool to facilitate the expansion into the micro and SME segment. We are doing the exact same thing with them in agriculture, where the Feed the Future strategy is becoming a key focus of interest for them in places like Senegal, Liberia, and Ghana. And so this is a, a unique product which leverages the U.S. government's um, balance sheet without necessarily giving out any money up front. Essentially, we give them our stamp of approval that says, not only have we vetted and have you gone through the due diligence process to meet the U.S. government's criteria for partnership, but we've also seen and agree with your strategy, uh, and, and we can synergize with you in agriculture, health, education, whatever the case may be. And we are willing to do that by taking up 50% of your risk exposure within that market. Um, as of last year, we have uh, almost $600 million in guarantees towards the ag sector across our portfolio. Um, of that, um, which represented roughly 25% of our existing portfolio at the time. Um, we have, within Africa, 53% uh, of our portfolio is in agriculture. The administrator wants us to push it to somewhere close to 66% over the next five years. Um, it's, a, it's a challenge because, as I indicated before, a lot more of our opportunities are going to be at the lower end of the market, especially when you're talking about smallholder lending or smallholder access to credit. So we need to find the right partners. It's very sexy to partner with the Barclays and the Standard Chartered Banks. But I'm, willing to t I'm standing here to tell you that having come from the portfolio management side of the equation, you have to think very creatively to find the right types of institutions with the capacity 
as well as the, the, the desire to want to partner with you in these sectors. We have seen incredible um, experiences, not always positive, in agriculture. Uh, John, um, in 2008, when the food crisis hit and the, and the Wall Street Journal and New York Times were writing about people making mud cakes to eat, uh, John pulled us into his office and said, look, how can we come up with ideas to address this issue? Uh, this was before private sector engagement became sexy. And we've been doing this since uh, 1999. So at this particular moment, when all the talk is about engaging the private sector, the question therefore pivots to how can we use different instruments? And now we're exploring going beyond our 50% guarantee because in some cases, you're going to have to do an 80% guarantee to get a private sector to be interested in putting up their own capital. In some cases, we might have to partner with another institution to take up a first loss transaction. We've done this with AGRA uh, on, on an expert. Well, it's not an, we hope to, to be able to do a lot more of it. The point being, we want to be able to be flexible to address the needs of the markets in which we are working. And especially if Africa is going to be a, a, an area of uh, special concern to us as an agency and, and as a government, then we need to be, to be willing to address the, the issue from the perspective with a, with a, with a private sector-minded approach, and that is to address it with you know, more than a 50% shared risk arrangement or bringing in other partners like the Swedish uh, Development Agency, uh, which has been a great partner in many different sectors, to take up half of the risk. The African Development Bank has also done so with us, whereby we partner with them to share the risk. We are willing to use our experience over the past 12 years to do the due diligence, to show the viability of these sectors. But in many cases, missions cannot afford to take on the entire risk on their own. And so the partners with whom we work uh, can take off some of that risk. We have a, a, a structure or a platform in place that makes it easier for us on a, on a cost-benefit analysis basis to, to, to manage the portfolio. And so we are willing to manage the portfolio on behalf of multiple parties as long as they're willing to share the risk with us. So we've done some experiments. Warehouse receipts was one that was of special interest to John and continues to be of special interest to everybody now that we are talking about private sector engagement and, and, and smallholder uh, engagement. We tried a few in, in Zambia, for instance, and we realized that no amount of guarantees can facilitate uh, access to credit in an environment where the warehouse receipt uh, the receipt itself doesn't guarantee ownership to the bank. And so the reforms need to take place. We need to do the economic growth, you know, the work that we do at the policy level. But while we are waiting for that to happen, we have to do something. And so when we can, we do something, we try to do it in a, on flexible terms with the private sector partners. Our hope is that we want to be able to get to the D and the fully viable sectors, whereby we don't need to be able to issue guarantees to incentivize the private sector participation in agriculture. I believe we are at a stage of A and B within Africa where the opportunities require a lot, or it's a heavy lift for any one institution. And so it becomes very imperative that we need to be able to partner across the broad spectrum of potential partners. We're looking at social impact investors. Uh, even, we don't necessarily work with private governments, but we need governments to be able to what, uh, put together policies that would allow us to be able to do the kind of work that we need to do on the private side. We are working with uh, private investors across the board. Recently, we, we signed a deal with J.P. Morgan last year to, to start uh, to capitalize a fund, expand the size of that fund so that they can begin to do uh, investments in agriculture 
I believe is a bit higher up on the spectrum in terms of the value chain. But the expectation is more of these examples will serve as a good catalyst for other uh, private sector players to, to, to enter into that market. Our goal within two, the next five years, it's a, it's, a, it's a rich goal, but it's one that we are very busily working towards, is to uh, mobilize $2.5 billion in private capital to go towards agriculture, health, and some of the other. This is a, a universal DCA goal, but 66% will certainly be within agriculture and health. Now, most missions, especially when we went through the targeting exercise to get them to make their own projections or contributions to help us meet this target, it was a very challenging exercise because AID has traditionally been filled with technical experts without necessarily um, having the expertise in, in finance or perhaps having the faith that the private sector can do as well that which we have been trained to do um, equally well. And so bringing in the private sector mindset into USAID's thinking here uh, was, a big, was a bit of a challenge. But I, I can tell you that having sub received all the submissions from the USAID missions and with the push that we are receiving from Administrator Shah as well as within the agency itself and Feed the Future, uh, the BFS uh, office, and the Africa Bureau, um, we can tell you that the opportunities are there, the missions are eager, and the message is quite clear and sound that we have a unique opportunity to incentivize $2.5 billion within the next five years. Um, if we shoot for the stars and we don't reach it, maybe we'll land on a star on our way back down. That's our hope. Uh, we hope to be able to do this and reach about 1.5 million uh, borrowers in terms of beneficiaries um, within this five-year five year span. Uh, the borrowers is, I mean, we are saying 125. This, we may exceed this. But if we do one transaction worth 10 million and it's a loan guarantee, which will also impact thousands of people, um, we, we will also take that as well. Um, so far, we've worked with 265, almost 300 bank partners. Um, we hope to be able to add another 200 more. My experience tells me that we probably won't be able to hit this number because we are going to be doing repeat transactions <clears throat> with the banks that have seen and tasted of the, of, of the system that we have in place over the past 12 years, have received claim payments, have gone through our reporting processes, and have recognized and appreciated the transactional, uh, the lack of bureaucracy that we impose on our bank partners to facilitate their partnership being a strong one with us. And so we probably end up working a lot more closely with some of the banks with whom we have prior experience. Now, um, I'll probably just keep this on the screen for, for, for a little bit to show you how the various um, legs of the, of the, of the three-legged stool work, so to speak. Uh, the capacity building um, strength of USAID has been well documented over the past, I mean, since the beginning. Uh, the enabling environment work, as I indicated before, uh, needs to happen and is absolutely crucial if you're going to, have to, if you're going to bring in um, private sector players. Yesterday I met with somebody helping one of our, one of our, our missions in Africa come up with a, with a strategy, the, the CDCS strategy. And we were talking about private sector participation. And she said she cannot understand why um, anybody can afford to do business within these markets because it's just it, this country is... It doesn't work. It's, it's broken. And I told her, it, 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 it looks, that's, I mean, from where we sit here in Washington, it may look so. 
But there are many people thriving at the bottom of the pyramid in many of these places. Business is happening, banks are making loans, and loans are being repaid. So while we are waiting for, while we are waiting for the systems and the reforms to take place, let us find the pockets of influence that we can have and find ways in which we can work with them effectively to address the credit constraints. Because these countries will never get to where they need to be unless they can mobilize their own domestic capital to address their own domestic needs. And then the financing piece is where we come in. Uh, we can work with any number of borrowers or any, I'm sorry, any number of partners in the form of banks, microfinance institutions, uh, funds. We can work with anybody that has money to lend and is willing to put it up. We are willing to share the risk with them if the risk is justified and it meets our due diligence and our, our criteria for partnership. We want to do more than guarantees. Uh, last year, a year ago, we added a strategic transactions group to our team. And what this group is going to do essentially, has, it has a mandate to go out there and find transactions that are not um, cookie cutter, so to speak. We have our main products. We have the loan guarantees, the portable guarantees, and those are the bond guarantees. Those are effective, and they've been doing very good work. In fact, I don't think we can exist without those, tra those, those transactions. However, there are certain transactions that require years to put in place. They require partnerships across the various partner types that we can come up with. And so the Strategic Transactions Group has the mandate to go out there, find those types of partnerships and those types of structures which will allow us to play a role, maybe not at the, at the, loan, at the, at the very bottom of that transaction, but we can play a role at the mezzanine level. Or maybe we can share the risk at the very... At the, uh, um, at the very early stages of the financing, how can we serve as a catalyst to bring together various pieces of the financing puzzle? And it is this STG group uh, which will look to do that. Um, finally, we have deployed field investment officers. Um, what these investment officers are going to do, uh, essentially they will serve as the mission's private sector um, go-to personnel on private sector engagement. Now, this was, this came out of a DCA initiative, but it certainly isn't envisioned to be a DCA position for the simple reason that there is a role for the private sector in every development angle you look at and every development space that we work in. And so this person sitting out there can go to a health sector, a health team meeting, and come up with a way to partner with some local private um, pharmaceutical companies. This person can go to an economic growth meeting and come up with a way to find a fund manager who is willing to provide um, a $10 million transaction with a guarantee that we will probably have written a $10 million uh, grant for, or uh, in this case, in these days, we don't write that many big checks like that. But I suppose the, the whole point being we want to be able to have a private sector mindset in everything that we do. Uh, and so we don't want to just have the guarantee be something that we push from Washington. We want it to be ingrained within the way USAID thinks and the way we do business. And so we've uh, notionally, we've, we've gotten uh, FIOs identified for these three main hubs, if you will, and uh, we hope by this summer they will be deployed out there and uh, taking over the momentum that we have as far as private sector engagement and making sure that when DCA is needed, we can come in and play a role. Um, and when other types of, I mean, we have the GDA, we have the Div Office, we have the Office of Innovation. There are various units within USAID that can attract private sector investments in what we do. And so we hope that uh, 
these FIOs can go and be the ears and eyes of the private sector in the mission strategies and in the mission meetings. I'm sorry for taking so long, but I hope this has been useful to you. Thanks, Kofi. Um, given the time constraints, what I would like to do at this stage is not uh, what we had planned, which was for me to go ahead and ask questions of the panelists. What I would like to do is, is actually look to the audience um, and give uh, uh, and maybe point out some uh, some individuals and companies and organizations that um, are doing good work and uh, and maybe tell their story briefly, and then we can open up for questions. Um, I saw Chris Richards in here earlier. I don't see him now. Is he here from IFC? Anybody from the World Bank? No. Okay. Um, Holly, maybe we can talk about uh, the World Cocoa Foundation and talk about some of the projects that you're doing in specifically West Africa, which are very interesting, and how those are linked into, for example, Echo Bank or would be beneficial if they were linked into Echo Bank, for example. <coughs> Sure. Thanks, Terry. Uh, my name is Holly Houston. I'm here with my colleague, Charlie Fiesel, with the World Cocoa Foundation. Um, we are a 501c3 just down the road. We're funded by the cocoa industry. Um, we have over 90 members that are names you probably know, like Mars, Nestle, Hershey, Kraft, as well as folks further down the supply chain that actually process the cocoa, like ADM and Cargill's, and then the traders on the ground who work in the origin countries. Um, we work a lot in West Africa. 70% of cocoa comes from West Africa. And um, we have large multi-donor platform programs in West Africa, including one with the Gates Foundation and two with USAID. Um, our most recent program with USAID is actually under the Feed the Future initiative. So they see cocoa as an important cash crop that influences the income uh, capabilities of the families to secure food. It's also intercropped with um, important food crops in West Africa, including cassava, plantain, uh, fruit trees, et cetera. Um, something we're moving into is the access to finance world because we've really focused our, our project so far on farmer training, um, really looking at the productivity at the farm level. Uh, we're working with 200,000 cocoa-growing households in West Africa, which represents about 10% of the, the population there that farms cocoa. Um, it's been so far a farmer field school kind of approach of, of looking at managing your farm um, in the, the most productive way. Productivity right now stands around 400 kg per hectare, where a productive farm could be 1,000 kg per hectare, so they're well under where they could be producing. Um, beyond the basic good agricultural practices as well as business principles that we're teaching of how to manage the cash in and out of your farm, um, a lot of feedback we're hearing from the farmers as well as our cocoa buyers on the ground is we need credit for inputs. Uh, fertilizer is especially underused, just like in a lot of agriculture in Africa. Um, the stat, I think, is 10 kg per hectare is used where it should be 120, 120 kg per hectare um, in cocoa. And I would say often even that 10 number is more like zero among the farmers that we work with. Uh, fertilizer costs around $400, you could say, per hectare, whereas the cocoa revenues per year may be $2,000. So you see where, on a cash standpoint, it's often impossible for a farmer to access fertilizer. Um, where we're moving is we have a partnership with IFC. Um, we've talked with DCA. I think, um, Kofi, your, your colleague, Anthony Cotton, 
has reached out to us as they're moving into Cote d'Ivoire, which is the biggest country for cocoa. Um, we have started some pilots with our private sector partners on the ground um, that really are the traders, the ones there buying the cocoa, and the ones who are working with the input suppliers. And through these linkages, we're then going to link to the farmers they work with, with fertilizer packages. Uh, right now, we have a pilot we're starting in Nigeria, actually, with Diamond Bank, um, with IFC's technical assistance um, support in structuring the loans. Uh, they're moving forward with financing the input supplier there that will reach 1,200 small-scale farmers. But the loan itself will go through the input supplier, obviously not directly to the farmers. Um, we're trying to expand in Cote d'Ivoire. We have a small-scale project there with TechnoServe. It's providing the technical assistance on the ground of training the farmers in, in loan management as well as the productivity piece is there. I uh, are working with an MFI in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, we've made some outreach to Echo Bank, Cote d'Ivoire before, but again, we're starting very small scale. We're talking a few thousand farmers to start with, and the loan size is $400 per farmer. So we have seen it's, it's a bit of an issue of making the case for scale initially to banks. Banks obviously have larger deals to focus on, um, but the potential for growth is enormous. Um, people say the, the market that's untapped in fertilizer and cocoa in West Africa is a billion dollars. And we're not going to get there currently with just the traders pre-financing as they've been doing. They're not a financial institution. That's not their role. It's really bringing the banks to the table. And for us, for our farmers who are receiving the, the ag training, um, the yield is improving, but without fertilizer, it's not going to get to that 1,000 kg level that we see needs to be on their current land. There's not new land to go into, obviously. Um, so I think the, the different themes that throughout this panel, the private sector involvement is hugely important. We focus at the private sector that's in country in these schemes. And we have been thinking of the companies, actual buyers of cocoa, but I think we really need to bring the other players in the private sector to the market, which are the banks, as well as the input suppliers. One of the things that uh, um, has been mentioned here in, in many of the presentations, but I think we need to focus on a bit more is the technical support, um, especially to the financial institutions, because the financial institutions, um, my experience over the last, let's say, uh, 10 years has been mostly in Africa, but in Asia, in Central Europe, um, the experience has always been going down market and finding solutions for rural farmers is much more difficult than typical, let's say, SME, which was difficult enough for most banks to go from commer or, uh, uh, corporate, commercial to middle market, then go down to SME level, and now you're asking them to do something that is extremely difficult and extremely risky. So this is where our partners, our, our panelists come in into play, really, is creating the, uh, the financial tools that allow the banks to take further risk and uh, have better or more risk appetite. You know, you've got issues of, uh, which I think uh, was brought up by Tom, you know, you've got issues of collateral, you've got all kinds of issues that the banks have to deal with, and they're very conservative banks, especially in these developing economies. Um, that's why, in, in, for example, in South Africa, during the 2008 financial crisis, South African <laughs> banks did pretty well. They, they were very, very risk-averse. They still are. I deal with them on a daily basis, and they really – you know, don't want to move into these markets. We've got tools that we've given them, for example, a DCA guarantee for one bank I won't mention, but 
how do you get it to be utilized? Um, because they still don't want to take the risk. You, you have to train staff, so on and so forth. So technical support is extremely important, I think, and that's something that we need to build into some of the financial tools that are out there with MCC, with OPIC, with uh, uh, um, DCA. And um, with that, I would like to uh, maybe ask um, Eric from CNFA, if you don't mind. I'm putting you on the spot, but maybe to talk about your farmer-to-farmer -farmer program and what you're doing there, and, and relate it back to some of the financial tools that are here and, and your work with USAID, for example. Thanks for putting me on the spot here. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Eric Sedlak. I work at CNFA as a senior associate in the program development office there. Um, I might bat farmer-to-farmer -to, -farmer to my colleague Jared, who is actually one of our senior farmer-to-farmer -farmer regional coordinators. He's sitting over there joining me here today. But uh, to talk a little bit about what we do, I mean, Holly touched on a few things that I would talk about. Um, we are collaborating with the World Cocoa Foundation on a Gates-funded initiative in Ghana, um, which has been quite successful, and it's mostly focused on access to finance in relation to access to inputs. And um, we look forward to, to expanding this. We've just received some, uh, some additional time on that project, so we're excited about that. Really, to hear everyone speak today, though, I think it's, it's really exciting for us as an organization because we're, we're really focused on empowering the private sector uh, and really rural entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, an example, the recently released Agriculture Commercialization and Innovation Program, which uh, touches on the DCA. Um, that, to us, this type of discussion, it's clear that everyone is completely focused on empowering the private sector in any way possible, using all the mechanisms, as you mentioned. Um, and so this is, it's all very exciting times, I think, for an organization like us. Uh, one of the things we're actually looking at right now in relation to Feed the Future is um, uh, livestock, and Bill mentioned this. This is something that uh, I think is is really important. Everyone's talking about animal protein, its relation to nutrition and agriculture and Feed the Future countries. And um, we all know that there's a, probably another drought coming to the Horn of Africa. So there's upcoming programs there, um, and we're looking very closely at uh, some of the exciting things that Ilri's doing with uh, livestock insurance and different types of loan products that we can try to get to, uh, to pastoralists or commercial livestock producers. Uh, with everyone knowing that this weather is coming, I think that their collective assets are probably going to be suffering. So this is something that, as an organization, we're looking at quite closely. But uh, if you want to give this to Jared and I'll let him talk about Feed the Future uh, and Farmer to Farmer. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. As Eric, my colleague said, I'm Jared Teets, and I work on our Southern Africa Farmer-to-Farmer -farmer program at CNFA. So looking at how to bring private sector development into Feed the Future, into more agriculture, working with the DCA and other financial kind of mechanisms, the role I could see Farmer-to-Farmer -farmer playing is that of bringing in the technical support. Farmer to Farmer, for those of you that may or may not be aware, is actually funded through USAID, and its main role is, in fact, to take volunteers from the U.S. and bring them over to lots of different countries. I think program-wide, we're around 25 or 26, not just at CNFA, but across all implementers. And basically what Farmer to Farmer volunteers do is they'll go on two- to three-week-long assignments providing technical interventions across various value chains. Uh, many of the volunteers that we work with that we feel that CNFA actually do focus on a lot of these business, microcredit, microfinance 
access to financial services and similar interventions. So Farmer to Farmer is a standalone program, but it's built in many ways to support existing programs on the ground. Uh, and that's what we've seen a lot of, and we have actually partnered with many other organizations. Um, and it's, I think it's a great mechanism. And if you're looking at involving the private sector, because we do work with many, many private sector organizations on the ground, not just within agribusiness, but we've actually sent volunteers to do training for agricultural financial institutions, commercial banks, and so on and so forth. So a project like Farmer to Farmer that's already sending over this technical expertise seems to be a great kind of way to bridge the gap that we're talking about as far as technical assistance is concerned. So that's a very, very general and brief overview of, of what we do. And I don't know if anybody has any questions, but I'd be happy to entertain them. Um, one thing that we, as we talk about access to finance, um, again, one of the things that was brought up was reach, the outreach of, uh, you know, we, we've talked about 1,100 branches that Echo Bank has across Africa, for example, but that's still really only touching, you know, the, the, the skin, if you will. Um, so one of the solutions I know that some of the companies out there have uh, uh, been focusing on is mobile banking. And um, one, and for um, I think maybe Lauren, if I could ask you to speak just a little bit about the mobile banking platform that you're developing, not only in Africa, but uh, maybe we can shift a little bit over to Asia as well, because I know you're doing some work there as well. Hi, thanks, Terry. Um, I'm from Shorebank International, and we're a technical assistance provider in the access to finance area, and we're actually working with Ecobank in, in six countries on SME finance. So it's been a wonderful partnership, and look forward to the next frontier with agribusiness lending. Uh, but I was going to actually ask that question about uh, mobile banking approaches as a way to reach the next, uh, the, the rural uh, populations that ha don't have the physical presence. You know, we know it's very expensive to build a br bank branch, and the great work that um, uh, MCC has been doing in Ghana just to provide internal uh, payments. I think is it's a critical backbone to everything uh, that that we're familiar with here in in the U.S. and more developed markets. But we what we've done in in the South Asia region, specifically in in Bangladesh uh, and Pakistan, and now India with actually also a great uh, grant from the Gates Foundation, has uh, been developing what initially was a savings project. So we were really trying to reach uh, uh, un un unincluded populations through building savings products. We quickly realized that it was the technology, the platform, the delivery channel was, was the challenge. So uh, we, we shifted to more what we call it alternative delivery channels focus and have been partnering, in some cases, uh, with commercial banks. So really using the bank as, as the intermediary, but allowing them to leverage other technology channels, such as mobile phones, to, to reach uh, develop agent networks. So really, it's, it's about training those intermediaries and, and building their capacity to both sell the products and reach out further to those clients that are that are lacking access. So I'd, I'd be really curious to hear what Echo Bank has been doing in this area, um, and particularly um, with the, the small farmers. And I was, I was quite intrigued to hear that you you have used the microfinance channel more readily with the with the small farmers as opposed to the small business channel. So I think that. Uh, the, these uh, you know, branchless banking approaches can really help at least 
uh, reach those customers and, and help in, in, improve the information flow, which I think is one of the biggest challenges. Uh, maybe, uh, Temi, do you want to touch upon that from an Echo Bank standpoint? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Terry. I, indeed, you know, we, we're partnering with the um, Bill Gates Foundation. Uh, um, I think they put about $6 million or so in Ghana uh, to see how we can uh, use uh, newly, new and emerging